6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 37 through 41. It says, Sacrifice offering thou dost not desire. Mine ears hast thou not opened. What that really means is digged. Digged open. What the illusion is, is from Exodus when a, 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 a slave had finished his uh, uh, time where he didn't have to be a slave anymore, he would be free. He had the choice, if he chose, to stay with his master for the rest of his life. That's what we call a bond slave. He'd, done, he'd served his six years or whatever it was, but he was free to go now. No, he could if he wanted to, if he chose to, stay with his master for the rest of his life. And if that was his choice... They signified it by his going to the doorpost and piercing his ear to the doorpost with an awl, you know, like an ice pick. And uh, then he would wear a ring in that ear, and that would be a symbol of pride because he was a bond slave. He was there because he chose to be, you follow me? And that's what Paul uses that term, doulos, a bond slave. He used that in the book of Revelation a great deal, where bond slaves are Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me because we live in a town that's named after that in a little different, in a backhanded way. Coeur d'Alene is a French term that the French-Canadian trappers used to give the Indians they were trading with a compliment, meaning they were sharp traders. So they called them the Coeur d'Alene's, the Coeur d'Alene, the heart of the all. They meant it in a derogatory, in a way. But to anyone that's biblical, that, the term all only appears twice in the Scripture. It has to do with the digging of the ear, the, the piercing of the ear, in signifying a bond slave. And uh, it's interesting that that aspect is not quoted by the writer to Hebrews in quoting this because he's applying it to Christ, okay? And Christ didn't have his ears nailed. He had his wrists and feet nailed. He, too, was nailed on our behalf, if you will. And uh, so he was nailed to the cross on our behalf. So, mine ears hast thou opened... It really means digged or pierced through, and that's an allusion from uh, ex, uh, Exodus 21.6. Uh, um, a body hast thou prepared for me is the way it's quoted in Hebrews 10.5. So the body is prepared, but it's, 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 done up, it's generically done because it's the whole body that was pierced, implying this to Christ. A subtlety, but it's a fascinating to see how the Holy Spirit works here. A we heard a sacrifice... Is mentioned here, any animal whose blood was offered at an altar was a sacrifice, and it was followed by a communal meal, typically. An offering is a meal offering that could be accompany sacrifices, is the term that's being used. And a sin offering is given to cover specific offenses and bring reconciliation between the offender and God. All three terms are used in these verses. All three terms apply to Jesus Christ. His blood was offered at an altar, and uh, we had the Last Supper, and we had 
and he was a sin offering. All of these were filled in Christ. Your Old Testament references in the Torah is the first seven verses, uh, seven chapters of the book of Leviticus, and of course Hebrews 10, the first 17 verses. So these three verses are very, very key verses. They're messianic. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou, my body was prepared. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required in David's case. Then said I, lo, I come. And by the way, the grammar there implies pre-existence. Pre-existence. Lo, I come. I've been somewhere. I now appear. For, for, then said I, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. Wow. In, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, it's quoted of Christ. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said, Ye search the scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. One of your great discoveries as you study your Bible is the discovery you've got to make for yourself that Jesus Christ is on every page. You can't find anything in the Bible that doesn't, isn't directly linked in some way to, to the, the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And, uh, but this law I come, this preexistence is interesting. And incidentally, remember the first task that Jesus does after his resurrection is to have a seven-mile Bible study on the way to Emmaus in which he's in the Psalms and in the Old Testament he presents Christ and he does it in the third person Christ that guy these two guys don't know who he is well didn't you know that that guy Christ so he speaks of himself in third, fascinating third person you don't think Christ has a sense of humor I think that's dynamite why are you guys so sad where were you fella don't you know what happened in the last few days and he has the audacity to look at me and say, what things? He's been arrested, six trials, tortured beyond human, crucified, dead, buried. What things, guys? Do you notice anything? <laughs> I love that. Luke 24, you've got to read it again sometime. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. So that's his role as king. Then he finishes the prayer for personal forgiveness and victory following the coordination in, in, in David's life thing. Trust God for all that remains, everything that hasn't been dealt with so far. Withhold not thou thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have compassed me about. My iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head. Therefore, my heart faileth me. <laughs> See, I thought all our hair, if, if all the hairs on our head are numbered, which we learned from Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, then if they're numbered, God must know them all. And if he knows them all, he's in charge. Why am I sweating it, you know? God knows all our problems. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Uh, I have to pause here. There was a time, I won't go and give you all the background. It's not that important. There was a time in my life, probably the darkest time of my life, where I was really terrified. I mean, it was really 
dark. I was really frightened. Really, really frightened. And I remember I called Chuck Smith on the phone. And I said, Chuck, you know it was an urgent call, so I took the call and, and I said, uh, Chuck, what do I do when I'm really terrified? What do I do? He gave me a very simple answer. Focus on the love of God. Just focus, whatever way you can, focus on the love of God. I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that. And uh, you don't look to yourself. You don't look to others. Look to him. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and confounded all together that seek after my soul to destroy it. Let them be driven backward and put to shame that wish me evil. Let them be desolate for a reward of their shame that say unto me, aha, aha. Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon me. Thou art my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O my God. So verse 16 is really a royal prayer for God's blessing on the whole nation. You can hear it coming from the lips of the king. And verse 17, he says, it's the I am thou art. The great I am is adequate for every need. And then uh, from verses 13 uh, through 17, these are all repeated in a slightly modified form in Psalm 70. When we get to Psalm 70, it'll all sound very familiar to you. Okay, we come to the creme la creme, the, the last psalm of, the, of book one, Psalm 41. And uh, now when we find ourselves in difficulty, we can use this psalm to take inventory of our spiritual condition, and we can find that out by asking four questions. Four questions. First, dealing with our integrity how do we treat others? That's the first of four questions. How do we treat others? Now take inventory, gang. Take a piece of paper. You can write your own report card. You don't have to show it to anybody. The second question will have to do with treachery. How do others treat us? Those are questions. Those are spiritual questions. Next one's mercy. How does God treat us? And the last one, how do we treat God? Four, four, four directions to look, right? How do we treat others? How others treat us? How does God treat us? How do we treat God? Make sense? Let's take a look at it. To the chief musician, a Psalm of David, blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in a time of trouble. We're going to discover that this Psalm opens with a blessing and closes with a blessing. We'll discover that book one opens with a blessing. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the council. Of, you remember? Psalm 1. And it'll close with a, a doxology, we'll see. Blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in the time of troubles. If you're taking care of the poor, God will watch out for you when you're in trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. He shall be blessed upon the earth, and thou wilt not deliver him unto the will of his enemies. That's quite a commitment. The Lord will strengthen him upon a bed of languishing. Thou wilt make all his bed in his sickness. 
you know, heal him and raise him up is what it means. I said, Lord, be merciful unto me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. So that's our integrity. It's a question about integrity. How do we treat others? Do we comply with those four, four verses? Then let's go to the next step and see how they treat us. We'll call this category treachery. How do others treat us? Mine enemies speak evil of me. When shall he die and his name perish? When David was ill, he had people hoping he would die so he would no longer be king. It wasn't just David's welfare. It's the welfare of the nation that was at risk here. And if he come to see me, he speak of vanity. His heart gathereth iniquity to itself. When he goeth abroad, he telleth it. All that hate me whisper together against me. Against me do they devise my hurt. We've talked many times, but you can allude your notes here to our little study on the most painful sin on the planet Earth. It's called gossip. It causes more pain probably than any other specific sin. An evil disease, say they, cleaveth fast unto him. And now that he lieth, he shall rise up no more. And David makes an interesting remark. Verse 9 is a very, very interesting little verse that comes out of David's heart. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Now, if this familiar friend is indeed Ahithophel, as most scholars assume it, that's David's allusion, is to Ahithophel. Um, Ahithophel was David's primary counselor. And Ahithophel turned on David and joined Absalom in his rebellion. And uh, Jesus quotes this verse in the upper room. He leaves out a little phrase. I'll come back to that. But he quotes this in John 13, verse 18. And uh, the part he didn't quote is in whom I trusted. Jesus didn't trust Judas. But he applies this to Judas. Mine old familiar friend, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up a seal against me. Now, Jesus makes that remark in John 13, 18, which is our justification for looking to this as a messianic psalm. And, and uh, so, now he, he didn't include that one part because it didn't fit because obviously Jesus did not trust. He knew Judas for what he was. In John 6, verse 7 and 71, or, and, uh, several, one of several references that speak, speak to that. This guy Ahithophel, though, it fascinates me as I read commentaries how people, few people understand who Ahithophel really was. He was an aged counselor that was David's inside advisor that turns against him, along with many others, uh, in Absalom's rebellion. Why did he do that? Well, Ahithophel was the father of Iliam, and Iliam was the father of Bathsheba. Duh! Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And I, he apparently never forgave David, for what he did to his granddaughter and his grandson-in-law. He murdered his Uriah and obviously compromised, if I can use that term, Bathsheba. And uh, so, by the way, if Absalom had succeeded, there would have been the end of the dynasty because he had no sons, according to 2 Samuel 18, 18. So he apparently, it's, it was Ahithophel's unforgiveness towards David that caused him to indulge in treason it's interesting that Ahithophel also committed suicide by hanging himself before it was all over. See the analogy to Judas in a sense here, okay? And of course, Jesus quotes this in the upper room referring to Judas, as I said. 
Peter also makes reference to this in Acts chapter 1, verse 16. Okay, the third of the four questions is mercy. How does God treat us? We've looked at how we treat others, taking that inventory. We see how others treat us, pretty shoddily, presumably. Um, how does God treat us? Well, let's see what David says here. But thou, O Lord, be merciful unto me, and raise me up that I may requite them. For this I know, that thou favorest me, because mine enemy doth not triumph over me. That's an interesting observation. David recognized that God was preserving him because his enemies hadn't triumphed over him yet. That's how I know you're favoring me, because they haven't won yet. <laughs> it's an interesting line of reasoning. By this I know that thou favorest me, because that mine enemy doth not triumph over me. And as for me, thou upholdest me in mine integrity, and settest me before thy face forever. Boy, isn't that exciting. But thou, O Lord, be merciful unto me, and raise me up, that I may requite them. That's the way it's in your English. The actual word there, raise me up, that I might requite them. The word requite is actually shalom. It's a close, it's close to, it's a derivative of shalom, but it's a covenant of peace. What it really means, restore them. If you're looking at this in the messianic form, Christ is in the tomb, Lord be merciful to me, and raise me up. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves us. A Christ on the cross may pay for sin, but it's the resurrection. It's 1 Corinthians 15 that nails it. I think Paul could justify that being, in his mind, the most important chapter in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15. In the first four verses, he defines the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's crucial. He didn't just disappear, he died. He didn't just die. It's the most documented death in the history of the world. And he didn't just die, he did it fulfilling specific specifications, hundreds of them. Not a bone being broken, etc. All kinds of strange details, all laid out in advance. Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, is a tragedy in the sense... I shouldn't say that. It's a marvelous piece of work, I believe. But it fails in, in, in at least one, one of several respects. It creates the impression that the crucifixion of Christ was a tragedy. No, it was, a tra it was an achievement planned before the foundation of the world. The other thing it doesn't do, tell you, it doesn't explain really who Christ was, the Creator Himself, incarnate. He not only died for our sins according to Scriptures, He was buried... And he rose again the third day. Not mystically, physically. He rose again. Handle me and see a spirit does not have flesh and bones, he challenges his disciples. So here, raise me up that I might restore them. You and I have hope because of the resurrection. The resurrection was the validation of what had happened three days earlier on that cross. 1 Corinthians 15, first four verses. And the reason I hit this is because the tragedy in America is that you don't hear that from the pulpits of the churches in America. The gospel of Christ. That's what it's all about. It's not about, and I could make a whole list of things that go on that have nothing to do with it. There are books being written, and there's forms of worship encouraged that have nothing to do, that never deal with the gospel of Christ, the good news, and what it's based on. That's what we're here to proclaim. Nothing less.
Okay, let's go to the fourth one. Glory. How do we treat God? We've looked at how we, how, how we treat others. We've looked at how others treat us. We've looked at how God treats us. How do we treat God? Oh, boy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. <laughs> the psalm opens and closes with blessed. The Genesis section of the psalms, these first 41 psalms, open with blessed. Each of the first four books of the five books of Psalms um, ends also with a doxology. And uh, book five will end with a whole psalm. Psalm 150 is the wrap-up of the whole thing, the last one. And this one, at the end of book one, ends with a double amen. Puts the finishing touches on God's salvation for us. It's another way of the Holy Spirit saying, it is finished indeed. To Palestine. Paid in full. And uh, there you have it. So we have a Pentateuch of Psalms. They have it. First 41 are called the Genesis book, all about man. Exodus is a group, as they call it, it's all about deliverance from 42 to 72. The next group of Psalms called the Leviticus section is all about the sanctuary, 73 through 89. The next group is called, it's all about uh, the wandering, unrest in the world. And the last one is the word of the Lord. And uh, so those are the five books of Psalms. And um, in the past, I haven't really um, um, been moved by the categorization in these categories. But the more I get into them, I begin to at least understand why they've partitioned them the way they have. And we'll try to highlight that as we go through. So we're, we've just finished the first 41 Psalms. Next time we open up book two, the Exodus group. And what I'd like you to do for next session is to meditate. Don't just read once, but immerse yourself in Psalms 42 through 48. 42 through 48. They will flow together far more than some of the previous ones we've looked at. And what's astonishing is how prophetic they are about the tribulation and the kingdom. In fact, I'd like you to figure out which of these psalms, forthcoming, of the next, you know, seven of them, are kingdom psalms. There's some of these that are designated kingdom psalms. See if you can just figure it out from the content as we go to, as we go through. And let's stand for our closing word of prayer. We're going to be entering the next group of Psalms at a very interesting time. We're going to be entering the year 2007. And one of the things we each should do, I suggest, is to spend some time together with your spouse on your knees in private and recount the ways God has blessed us to this point. And I'm also going to suggest that every one of us covenant before God to deliberately, seriously raise the bar on our personal walk. Figure out what it is that you can do to increase your involvement with the Word of God. 
You read it every day devotionally. I take that for granted. That's wonderful. Undertake a serious study of the Scriptures. Verse, book by book, verse by verse, wherever you want to go, however you want to do it. There are lots of ways to do it. Everybody, different strokes for different folks. But make a resolve to make 2007 a year of commitment to the Word of God. Because whatever else will happen will happen. The Holy Spirit will move in your life. He will illuminate what He wants of you. Your big challenge is to discover what it is He would have of you in the days that remain. But one way to begin that is to get serious about His Word, and He'll take it from there. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we do praise You. We come before Your throne in awe of who You are. We stagger as we realize that your thoughts to usward are beyond even numbering, that you love us that much, more than we can even comprehend. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for being present. We thank you for the abundance that you shower upon us. And yes, Father, we thank you that you love us enough to rebuke and chasten as a loving father would. And yet, Father, we also would ask you to illuminate that path before us just a little more clearly so we might better understand what it is you would have of each of us in the days that remain. Help us to be more responsive to your will. Help us, Father, to grow in your word that we might more fully apprehend who you are and what you've done for us and what you would have of us in response. As we commit ourselves without reservation, into your hands, in complete trust of you, as we come in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Amen.